everybody, and welcome to Volume 5, Issue 201 of the Cana Rinse Podcast. You can play along with us. And our fifth volume is now underway. Uh, increasingly, people are telling us that they are going to play along with the podcast. So here are your tasks, your homework, your, your backlog tackling starts with Mass Effect 3. Then it shall be Middle-Earth Shadow of Mordor, currently available cheap as we record this in a number of places. Then we return to Zelda for Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. After that, it's Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney, just the first one for now, calm down. Uh, and then it'll be Sunset Overdrive. As always, head to canarince.com for articles, features, reviews and links to our forum, our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. The full schedule is up as well, of course all the way up to issue 50 uh, that will be late next year 2016 and we have a fairly large announcement uh, I may have also uh, put out a, a special separate brief podcast explaining uh, this but in case you haven't heard it or it hasn't happened uh, because several of you asked for or at least suggested it in the strongest possible terms uh, who are we to argue so we do now have a Patreon uh, the address of which is to be confirmed at the time of recording, but uh, we reckon it will be something probably along the lines of patreon.com slash Rinse. Or, of course, you can just Google it or follow the links on our homepage, forum or social media pages. Uh, and simply it's this. If you feel that the hundreds of hours of podcasts that we produce are worth some sort of fiscal remuneration, you can now donate a pound or a dollar uh, a month or, or more if you wish. Or you could just make a one-off donation and it will help us keep doing what we're doing. Uh, there'll be no tiers or targets set or anything like that. There'll be no content hidden be behind paywalls. And if you don't wish to contribute or aren't able to, everything that we put out uh, podcast-wise and on the, the blog and videos and everything will still be free and available to everyone. If you prefer to get something physical in return for your money, uh, don't forget we do still have a shop uh, where you can support us by buying uh, T-shirts and bags with the Cane and Rinse uh, logo on. Uh, and each of those purchases nets us a couple of quid and you get some cool gear. Uh, also, don't forget, we're now up to uh, 30 odd or uh, just coming up to 30 Sound of Play podcast, which is our video games music show. And as always, we ask you, if nothing else, please do try to remember to review and rate us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, or if you get it through other uh, services or you have other apps or whatever, um, whatever facilities they offer for uh, showing your support, please utilize those. That's uh, really kind of you. Thank you. So, Volume 5, joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue, Darren Gargett. Uh, hey, hello. Joshua Garrity. Hello there. And Ryan Heyman. Yeah. <laughs> nice. It's not really appropriate for this one, but yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, it's nicely done. <laughs> Legacy. <laughs> so we're going back to 1986 for the first of, I think we've calculated, is something going to be something like a 17 or 18 podcast series that's going to take us a year and a half. <laughs> Goodness me. Mm. Uh, we don't do things by halves. And so... The Hyrule Fantasy, Zerida no Densets is the name of the game. That's its real original Japanese name, uh, which makes a lot more sense to call it the Hyrule Fantasy mm. um, because then the story of The Legend of Zelda could have been just one little, you know, sort of episode or, or, or section of that story. But The Legend of Zelda is what? 
what we all know it as the 1986 game made by Nintendo R&D 4. Of course, uh, those people are Shigeru Miyamoto and Takashi Tezuka. Uh, they were the uh, director, uh, producer, director, writer. Some well-known Nintendo programmers also worked on the game. Toshihiko Nagako, uh, Nakago and Yasunari Suejima, uh, both still, I believe, working at Nintendo, working on contemporary nintendo titles at least uh at least fairly recently things like um we fit are, are in their their um on their cv koji kondo of course did the music uh, but there's some interesting stuff to learn about that and discuss later on the game first arrived on the famicom disk system a japanese only much uh, much as would be the case with the 64 disk drive later later on the famicom disk system was a japan only add-on for the famicom or as we know at the nes and it came out uh, hyrule fantasy february the 21st 1986 it was in doubt whether the game would be localized or translated for america and the west um obviously the nes was massive in america not Mm. at all so in europe and it didn't even arrive in europe until later but uh arakawa minoru arakawa who i think was the president at the time of nintendo or certainly very high up i'm not sure when hiroshi yamochi took over but arakawa was uh, hesitant about releasing zelda in the usa he wasn't sure americans would have enough patience to understand the game (laughs) Uh, and uh this Mm. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and uh, this is an excerpt from uh, a book, The Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen Kent. When the first prototypes of The Legend of Zelda arrived in the USA, uh, Minoru Arakawa was not sure how people would re- respond to the complex game with text windows in it. He worries that perhaps the game was too complicated for American audiences. To test this out, he had several employees try the game in order to give the game a fair chance. Arakawa arranged for Japanese-speaking workers to sit with American employees and translate any kanji that appeared in the text boxes. Actually, I think it was, I think it's katakana, but uh, Mm. could be wrong. It was all in Japanese, which made it really hard to play, but it was just so compelling that we kept playing it and playing it. The way the game mechanics worked, the fact that it did this great thing with that sword, it had great mechanics. Typical of Miyamoto, it had puzzles. You would come across things that would be on the island or behind a door or whatever, and you could see them, but you couldn't have them. That's what Howard Phillips said. As he tested The Legend of Zelda on his employees, Arakawa noticed a disturbing trend. Most American workers who played the game did not warm up to it instantly. They all ended up giving the game high marks, but Arakawa noticed that some people needed as much as 10 hours before they understood the game and enjoyed it. However... Uh, Nintendo persevered and they released the game in America in August uh, 1987 and it came out in Europe, at least some of Europe, in November 1987. I can't remember when the NES actually launched in the UK, but never mind. The cartridge version, uh, this was a cartridge version rather than the disc version that originally came out on the Famicom Disk Mm -hmm. System, obviously, and that was eventually released in Japan in 1994 under the title The Legend of Zelda 1. There was also uh, a Satellaview version another japanese only add-on this time for the super famicom or the snes and this was the online system uh that you could download games to as well ahead of its time of course bs the legend of zelda third quest uh, came in two parts there was a first map in 95 and a second in 1996 darren gargett you uh you collect oddments that nintendo released um You've got some 64DD stuff, haven't mm-hmm. you? But mm-hmm. have you got a Satella view? No, no, not at all. What, what does BS stand for? 
I don't know. I, I, it's it's tempting to assume yeah. the obvious, but uh, <laughs> I see the games like BS F Zero. There's an F Zero sequel out for that machine right. as well, and there was you know various BS games. And I, is it anything to do with BBS where you download it? Is it something to do with you know possibly that some. era of downloading things? I've always wondered, but you know, never actually took it further to research it. Maybe I should. I don't know. Hmm. Look it up. There were a few BS moments in the first couple of Zelda games. So. Hey, <laughs> That's, you did it. Uh, definitely, definitely true. Uh, <laughs> the game was also available um, through Animal Crossing, but not uh, by legitimate means. It's in the NES emulator that they uh, that they included in Animal Crossing, which came out in 2001 in Japan first. Um, but uh, whereas you could be gifted some cartridges uh, and others were available for, through the e-card reader, I think you could only get Zelda via a cheap action replay yeah, or, or right. similar type mm-hmm. device. Um, this was before Nintendo kind of realized that they could start actually charging money for their old <laughs> NES games. And uh, that's what they've been doing ever since, pretty much. The classic NES series uh, version came out for GBA, Game Boy Advance, in 2004. Um, there was a collector's edition, which was uh, I sent off for, as uh, I think, as a reward for purchasing certain other games. I think that's right. In, on the GameCube in 2003, it had uh, the first two Zeldas, didn't have link to the past because that was currently that mm. was being sold on the GBA at that point, mm-hmm. um, but did have an emulation of Ocarina of Time on it. Yeah, and um, Wind Waker demo. I think I had Majora's Mask on it as well. I think I might be talking wrong. Oh, you know, you're absolutely right because it was a glitchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was quite a glitchy emulation yeah. of that. You're you're spot on. And of course, the NES version came to the uh, Wii Virtual Console when that was pretty much when that was launched at the end of 2006. Uh, then it popped up again five years later as part of the 3DS Ambassador program. Hey. So that was a, a freebie. Mm-hmm. Um, shortly after that, it was released uh, for money on the 3DS Virtual Console. And then another couple of years later in 2013, the Wii U version. Um, there's one other oddment to talk about. I'm not sure if this is the only one, but I, I have now learned of a Zelda no Densetsu Tekyo Charimera, which was uh, as a part of a promotional adver- advertisement campaign for their Charimera noodles. Myojo Foods Company Limited released a version of the original Legend of Zelda, also in 1986. The game is one of the rarest video games available, apparently, and copies have sold for over $1,000. I'd be interested to see what uh, what noodle related treats are in the game. Whether the medicine is like some delicious ramen or something, who knows? Uh, obviously, as we go on this series, we're going to talk about the you know the legacy of the series. Um, I think it's important to say that you know the Legend of Zelda wasn't the first RPG, and uh, it, there were definitely influences on it, including uh, adventure on the Atari mm-hmm. 2600 is a crucial one. Even though we don't have the same level of re- resource in terms of, uh, you know, actual review scores from the time, uh, it's worth saying that um, the game was uh, a, a fixture at the top of Nintendo Power's top 30 uh, f- from uh, through the 80s into the 90s. Games Radar described it as the third best NES game ever made. Um, Interestingly, it was reviewed by uh, the UK's Total magazine in 92, so some years after it came out, after the SNES was already out, um, where it received a a relatively modest 78%, um, but that included sort of being marked down for, um, you know, what would would have already by then been less than, you know, um, state-of-the-art music and graphics. Game Informer's uh, Top 100 Games of All Time in 2001, Zelda won that, and the Top 200 in 2009. Uh... Fifth in EGM's 200th issue listing of the 
greatest 200 video games of their time. Uh, interesting distinction. Seventh in Nintendo Power's list of the 200 best Nintendo games ever. 80th among IGN readers, top 99 games. Uh, it's been inducted into the GameSpy Hall of Fame as of 2000. Um, GameSpy Editor's 10th best game of all time. Uh, and so on and so on. Um, interestingly, the one of the more recent sets of reviews for the game other than the Virtual Console was the GBA port because that was released in a box and mag- magazines and websites were still you know reviewing everything like that. Um, the average game ranking score is 79%. So that's sort of relatively contemporary, although still 10 years ago kind of, kind of score. As far as we know, uh, the game has sold something like 7.4 million copies, but you know which which releases that includes i don't know you can probably add some on a few little interesting facts the game was developed simultaneously with super mario brothers so miyamoto and tezka during that period in sort of um 90 probably 1984 they were working on these they were just you know changing the industry forever what are you working <laughs> on at the moment um we're doing a platformer called super mario brothers and the ideas that don't go in that are going into this other <laughs> little rpg we're doing called uh, the legend of zelda we'll see how they turn out uh link's look is indeed based on disney's uh, 1953 peter pan uh, and he was right-handed uh, in early art and promo materials he's been staunchly left-handed ever since of course apart from mm-hmm the mirrored version of twilight princess will come to that in about eight months time or something maybe more and uh skyward sword as well of course because they continued with the uh with the motion controls yeah good point the name zelda was taken um because miyamoto heard it used for uh, author f scott Fitz- fitzgerald's wife and that was her name and he thought it sounded exotic and and like that of a of a beautiful woman um famously uh, the late robin williams named his daughter after the princess in the game. It was the first cartridge with a battery back save. I didn't even know that until researching the show. Um, it was an unusual treat at that point not to have to use codes or anything like that. I remember a few years ago, it came about the time that the Pokemon cartridges were starting to fail, like their batteries were all going mm, out. And so there was kind of a right. big outcry on the internet is like, say goodbye to your Blastoises, like this could be the last weekend you spend with them. Uh, do we know <laughs> if the Zelda batteries have expired by now or when they're going they to? Done, I'm, I'm sure, sure they must yeah. have. I mean, it's 30, it's 29 years. Um, and I remember playing Super Nintendo games with battery backups like Super Metroid in the sort of uh, 2000s that were already struggling. So, yeah, I, I, I suspect. But you can replace them with, a you know, get a screwdriver out and get the right sort of lithium battery. You, you can fix them up, I believe. But obviously, Virtual Console uh, makes your life easier. Um I didn't also. I also didn't know that an earlier, easier prototype version of the game emerged in 2010. Um, you can download that. I assume that's illegal, but you can play it on an emulator and see that uh, the game wasn't always quite as difficult uh, as it turned out to be. Uh, and I'm not sure if it's the version of the game where Link actually starts with the sword, mm. but that was certainly the case for some time into development. But Miyamoto being the pickle that he is decided <laughs> that it was too easy, too obvious to let Link start with a sword. So he made you go into a cave and get it off a strange old man. Yeah, he wanted like playground um, communication to happen and, you know, people to talk at work about, you know, where they found various Zelda secrets. And I think yeah. the idea of taking the sword away was to provoke kind of like that Fez interaction that happened recently. Uh, you know, Very much people so. were like, oh, have you heard about the thing in the corner? And, you know, trying to like... The community to solve the obtuse, uh, you know, uh, problems in Zelda. Yeah, it was, in, you know, it was inspired by removing the sword away. 
Absolutely. And of course, it also opens up the possibility of getting to the end of the game without ever having collected the sword, <laughs> if you're insane. I think this story's been told before, but it's nice. So I think it's, uh, it's always worth mentioning. I think we talked a little bit about this sort of thing at the start of our Super Mario series, but um, Shigeru Miyamoto grew up in uh, Sonobi, south of Kyoto, where Nintendo's based now, uh, probably was then as well. Um, he was, uh, his childhood, he spent wandering, didn't watch uh, telly, um, and he would, you know, go into caves and um, seek adventure of his own, mapping out in his head or possibly on paper, who knows, miniature cave systems and and things like that. And um, the, that that sense of wonder and discovery, and we were talking about this on Sound of uh, Play recently with Jay and CJ, just that it's that thing that I've always wanted from video games, that sense of going somewhere that you haven't explored before. And mm. even if you know somebody's laid it all out for you, there's still something there's still something that that is intriguing. And and actually in real life there are so many restrictions about where you can and can't go, you know, for for legal and safety reasons mm. that it's very hard to to carve out your own adventure. And once you're an adult, you can't generally just go around kind of exploring abandoned <laughs> buildings or 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 you know i mean i know people people do go spelunking and stuff like that um but again there's an actual danger <laughs> involved there but i love that idea I, and and i totally get i've always got that from miyamoto's games that sense of you know finding little nooks and crannies and cubby holes and and adventures that feel like they've been squirreled away just for you to discover even though you know it's you know there's a lot of smoke and mirrors oh yeah uh, when i was a kid you know me and my brother would run around uh, a barn full of sort of misplaced hay bales that are like you know, giant mm. rectangles of these hays like you would like climb all over them and inside and out and find all these nooks and crannies and you knew that there was nothing there but like the sense of like, ownership and discovery yeah just from a barn full of hay it's yeah it's weird Another nugget was that uh, in an interview with Game Cult, Miyamoto revealed that um, Zelda was going to be a kind of past and future time traveling game, kind of maybe some something like Chrono Trigger <laughs> turned out. Um, and the bits of the Triforce were actually sort of electronic chips. Uh, and supposedly the reason that Link is called Link was because he was going to link the past to the future. I've always seen it, or I've, I've often heard it hypothesized that it's the link between the player and the game. Yeah, But... But that could also, you know, that's, that sounds like it might have truth to it, it as well. It makes sense if when you think about the later games, you know, uh, Link to the Past and Ocarina of Time literally have time references in the, uh, in the title. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing, we're, we're not going to get bogged down with the timeline stuff. Um, it's been a matter of record since 2011 when the Japanese version of uh, Hyrule Historia came out. Um, I suspect that's a book that at least most of us on this podcast mm. have and treasure mm-hmm. um, and many of our listeners too. But I think the one thing that does interest me about the timeline of this game is when I, I read The Legend of Zelda, which is the first Zelda game, the one we're covering today, has one sequel. And that's Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link, because all the other Zelda games are prequels. <laughs> I believe that's correct. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't want to get into it. <laughs> not because it's like a horrible hole to go down but i just don't find it that interesting i don't find that it matters no. uh, to my experience it's that, nice that it's there it. though but i don't yeah. ever want to tread further than that yeah and an interesting thing about there, there's a there's a great uh resource all about the localization if you search legends of localization um there's a there's a multi-page uh, thing comparing every facet of the japanese american versions talking about the differences uh, in sound and a few graphical tweaks and so on and so forth but perhaps the most interesting thing is that um 
famously Nintendo of America in particular used to be very sensitive about things like religious iconography but um, the cross on uh, Link's shield makes it all the way through into all versions of the game Um, but the magic book uh, which is the Bible in the original Japanese version becomes the magic book. Which is strange because even within you know the Judeo-Christian people don't use the Bible to cast magic spells. (laughs) Are you sure? Um, No, you're quite right. You're quite right. So um, we need to talk about our histories with the game, our personal experiences. Um, uh, Yeah, I think I'm the only one here who's old enough to have played it at the time, but I didn't. Um, So I think it's important to say uh, when we did first come across it, and you know when when and how we've played it. Let's start with Darren. Yeah, um, I was very very young. You know, born in 1983. So um, you know, get games. I couldn't play them at my leisure. You know, I happened upon them via a friend or for a brother or something. And this particular game, I remember seeing Link through the crack in the door of my older brother's bedroom. Uh, He was playing with his uh, neighbor and friend. And he slammed the door in my face because it was like the new game in town. And he's like, boom, go away. You know, typical brotherly rivalry kind of thing. I've got the new game, go away. And I remember just seeing the little elf character on the screen. Never knew what it was. And I was never really interested in the series, you know, until Ocarina of Time. So for, for ages, I've been like scratching my head thinking... I remember that game that my brother was playing, but I'd never, ever, you know, seen it since. And only since, you know, Ocarina of Time being my first, going back through it and then seeing that image in my mind's eye on the screen in front of me when I played it on the 3DS version because of the Ambassador program. I was like, oh, that's exactly what that game is. And uh, I, had, I had a similar experience with the original Sable Wolf on Spectrum. You know, I played it around a friend's house and never saw mm. it until Rare Replay or, you know, around about that time. I was like... That's exactly, it's weird how your mind works when you cast back like literally decades to like a single image that you've got burned in your mind. Um, But you know, I've I've tried to play the original Zelda in many forms. Um, I think my most, uh, you know, accomplished (laughs) playthrough was WarioWare's 9 Volt where you run into that cave a million times over. Yeah. (laughs) You know, yeah. and then that's it, it's done. And you're like, oh, okay, that's that's my Zelda experience. But every time I see 9 Volts, you know, micro game, it always makes me go, I should try the original Zelda. Mm. I've played them all. Why haven't I played these original NES ones? And, uh, you know, if, luckily this um, this volume of podcasts has uh, given me the uh, incentive to actually get through it on the, on the 3DS, which I was working in London at the time. So I had a train journey there and back every day. And uh, I, I kind of forced myself to play through the uh, both the original NES games. On, on, on train journeys excellent well done uh, so that's a, a, a recent uh, yeah a 2015 conquering. summertime yes. conquering yeah. Josh how about you so I was minus three years old mm. when uh, The Legend of Zelda came out in the UK um, so I didn't play it at the time for obvious reasons selfish I didn't exist um, <laughs> so yeah I I never owned a Nintendo console until the Wii. Um, So my first experience with Zelda was actually Twilight Princess. Mm. And uh, since then, um, I I became quite a big fan of the series and decided that I was going to try my best to play as many entries uh, in the series as humanly possible. 
and thankfully this series has come along and ensured that I will play every single one of them. Um, so, yeah, I, I worked my way backwards through the series, uh, uh, through the 3D ones, and at this point I have, in fact, completed all of the home console 3D uh, uh, Zelda games in some form or another. Uh, and it's really the kind of 2D... Uh, games from the NES and SNES era and the uh, portable games that I haven't gotten round to. So um, for for whatever reason, I I kind of... um, I always assumed that I'd never really touch the NES game simply because as an era of gaming, I find that it's it's hard for me personally to go back to. Um, the, the, the SNES era I have no problem with, but uh, NES games tend to be at such a high difficulty that uh, I... I t- tend to bounce off of them but thankfully the wii u with its lovely um save state feature has uh, has made uh, these two des games uh, much more approachable for me so i i have only just played you know played this game for the first time this year and completed it uh completed it on the wii u virtual console very recently i gather because you tweeted a couple of days ago that you still had what a couple of dungeons to go yeah th- yeah so this week basically i f- yeah. finished it so yeah mm. ryan uh you're a young man but also an american where the nes was kind of a big deal yeah we're uh, we're more kind of home console folks than uh the british tend to be more kind of computer based back in the old days back in the least. 80s yeah. yeah yeah um uh, I'm the same age as Josh is, and so uh, same story applies there. Wasn't born at the time that this was uh, was current release, but I was always kind of tangentially aware of it, and I did grow up playing other Zelda titles. I remember playing a lot of Oracle of Seasons growing up, and Wind Waker, and Twilight Princess, and, and this and that along the way. And I always... I always knew what this game looked like. I always knew, like, I kind of, I think I sat down with it a couple times just while I was out and about uh, in NES somewhere, and I'd I'd booted up and always surprised and amazed by, like, how quickly it booted right when you hit the button. It's like you're looking at the title screen right away, which Mm. is kind of cool by, like, modern standards. You know, it's not the uh, requisite hour and a half of installing updates every time you put in a game. Um, But it's... uh, I, I never actually sat down to play it. I I got um, I got the 3DS version from a Club Nintendo reward, uh, but then it was only just recently that I sat down and said like, okay, I'm gonna push through this. Uh, it I was I think I was just always a little bit intimidated how games were mm. back then, how challenging they were, and how um, and how I feel like in my experiences with the later ones, like A Link to the Past, I kind of felt like. I had seen everything that this one would have had to offer, but just a lot polished and more accessible. And so my desire to go back to it was not super strong, but I, I did for the podcast and I'm, I'm glad that I did, but we'll get to, we'll get to that in a little bit here. Yeah. Uh, similar to Darren, really, for me, my main experiences of this Zelda started with 9Volt and Wario, where um, I, I, I started Zelda with Link to the Past and it was already that was already getting on a bit in 1995 when I first played that so um, 
somebody on our forum was saying, well, Leon was old enough to be around at the time of, of the original Zelda. So it'd be interesting to hear what he thought of it then. I'm afraid I didn't play it um, until about 2003 when I got it as part of that GameCube collection and I bounced right off of it. Um, to be honest, I was never a fan of uh, NES graphics, um, even compared to home computers of the time. Like they weren't as quite as chunky as, say, Commodore 64 graphics on the usual resolution. But I always found them a little bit dull looking and um uh, i didn't apart from perhaps super mario brothers i didn't feel that nes games had a a lot of character or or attractive color about them so that always put me off um and also uh yeah just the difficulty um level and this particular game's kind of obtuseness uh yeah put me right off it but I mean, it's worth saying that, you know, we, we, we must be honest to uh, to our listeners about, you know, how we've played these. And I certainly com- abused save states. Oh, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, 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 me too. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and walkthroughs. Um, and to be honest, that was the only way to, you know, to play this game to a deadline, to make sure that we all finished it, to expedite the you know, to make sure that this podcast actually happened, basically. Now, there may be some purists out there, some fans of the game who know it inside out, who can complete it without any such shenanigans and fair play to you. But probably without the option to do it that way, then this podcast wouldn't exist. So it, there is kind of a trade-off going on. And, and we have, but you know, we have to accept that um, playing this au naturel, as, as the developer in- intended, would be a very different you know, uh, experience. So, so do bear in mind that our our naughtiness colours uh, our experiences. But having said that, pretty much anyone who's going to come to this game after listening to this podcast is probably going to try to play it via virtual console and, and use save states in the same way. But um, I'm sure we'll talk more about that mm. as we go along. Well, like I said earlier, uh, Nintendo kind of wanted um, you know people to talk to each other about solving riddles and puzzles and stuff. That's right. To a point where they you know they created Nintendo Power because they had so many subscribers to the fan fanzine, I guess, of Zelda. Like they'd, they'd put puzzles and riddles in these um, like newspapers that they'd hand out. And it would give clues to the Legend of Zelda and you know and mm. Hyrule. So I'm, you know, it, I did use save states, and I do feel kind of guilty. But you know, I couldn't have done it without it. But also, no. I'm not yeah. that kind of guilty of using a guide because Nintendo were kind of ha- kind of handing them out to the fans at the time yeah, yeah. via little fanzines and magazines and stuff. So that's kind yeah, of yeah. There were clues I, in the manual, some badly mm. translated. Um, obviously, you would have been, but yeah, but as well as Nintendo Power, you would have been buying probably a you know journalist written magazines with with guides in and hints and tips so i don't think it's so different in in a way but the difference is that where the original cartridge had um you know it did have the the disc save on the famicom version and the battery save on the cartridge versions Mm -hmm. uh the difference is that you can do what uh, i'm told the cool kids call save scumming (laughs) which is basically saving over and over again before you get into any danger and absolutely the dungeons we'll talk about them beyond four really dungeons six seven eight particularly um and the last one just are just really really difficult by any standards um and i would say if you hadn't also by that point uh submitted to a walkthrough and found some of the helpful items pretty much impossible i mean not (laughs) impossible because we know i know there's videos of people out there going through the entire game without collecting anything you know you can of course you can do it you can you can you can learn you can learn a game that well but uh, frankly it's not it's not the pastime of somebody who plays 
multiple games a month for a podcast and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, but it's interesting. Obviously, we will get more into the difficulty. But I want to start with those visuals because, as I say, it's um, it's a side of the game that never massively appealed to me. Um, I find them incredibly functional. Obviously, there's a they they absolutely crammed the cartridge full. Um, you know, including the second quest, the legendary, uh, basically, you know, a, a nascent new game plus type idea, um, but perhaps even more so because dungeon layouts and everything were different. Um, but the actual, you know, the tiles, the graphics and so on, um, very limited. And, and as I say, for me, I never liked the Ness's color palette. So for me, it's quite a, it's quite an unappealing looking game. But is that just me? The NES, uh, I never really thought about NES graphics until like looking back at them now. But, you know, because uh, as a kid, you don't really think about that kind of stuff. Like, you know, Mega Man was Mega Man and, you know, it was a good playing game. But I think my issues with Zelda's sort of aesthetics, you know, the Zelda NES, this, this is, um, is that the box art straight from the off doesn't appeal to me. And I know it's not graphics of the game, but it kind of sets a tone for the whole game. So when you see a sword and a shield as a, like a nine-year-old or something, you're not really... You know, you want action. You know, you want the turtles popping out of you on the box rather than just a sword and a shield. Well, you did. Well, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm generalizing there, but you know, <laughs> I kind of wanted some like box art. You know, mag- magistry. Whereas I know elegance. You know, less is more now. But back then, I was kind of like, oh, is that it? Is that what you get? <laughs> just a sword. You wanted and a shield. like the amazing Mega Man box art I, for the NES. <laughs> I wanted Link to poke a sword out of the box in like uh, you know like hologram 3D like they did back in the day, where you used to shake it from left to right. I wanted some magic. I wanted some magic. But yeah, you know, um, the actual art style. It's really hard for me to judge it now because it is a NES game, and you know, it is what it is. But um, the, the only thing I can take away from it is that the fact that it, the dungeons. Uh, yeah, you know Edmund McMillan and Biden of Isaac fame and um, Super Meat Boy fame he, he took that idea from The Legend of Zelda so you know going through these dungeons was it was kind of like an incentive for me to see quite how much he took from The Legend of Zelda and put into The Binding of Isaac yeah things like the fact that the fires spit at you in mm. some places which mm. yeah, yeah. is not something that Zelda's kept um, throughout its series uh, but Binding of Isaac took it straight from the first The Legend of Zelda and yeah. put it in the yeah. deep red fire spit at you, that and, kind of and thing. The bombable yeah, walls sure. and yeah, there's there's various things in the Binding of Isaac which is lifted straight out of the original. Yeah, Zelda. bombable walls with no clues, no <laughs> yeah. visual clues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For how simplistic the graphics were, they did a surprisingly good job of of communicating what the monsters yeah, were yeah. supposed to be. And so like sure. looking in the little uh like the instruction booklets or the player's guides where you see the little illustrations that the artist did uh you know sometimes they were um like the the dig dogger or whatever i'm like okay that's cool that's what it's supposed to look like but most Mm. of the time it's (laughs) like a pretty direct like that's exactly what i had in my imagination Uh, i think a few of them like the i think the skeleton key didn't really come out that great (laughs) i'm not a fan of the way that one looks but just minor nitpicks like once i look at something I know exactly what it's supposed to be. And maybe that's a little bit of uh, just, just retrospect. Like, you know, I know that Zelda games have boomerangs in them. So when I saw that weird little, you know, toenail clipping, I knew what it was supposed <laughs> to be. Well, yeah, I suppose. I mean, they're definitely, yeah, definitely functional, more than mm-hmm. functional. But yeah. Um, yeah, I feel much the same as Ryan. I, I don't find the visuals up. Uh, you know, unpleasing. They just do the job they're meant to do. They tell you what the enemies are possibly going to do. I mean, for example, the uh, the enemies with the big shields that you can't attack from the front. Oh, Armos. Yeah, yeah. The, oh, Armos. Oh. 
yeah, but um, <laughs> whichever name they're called, um, I, I, you, you get a sense of exactly what they're going to do just by looking at them. They're big. They've got a huge shield. And it communicates the fact that maybe you need to attack these guys from the side or from the back. Hmm. Um, and, and in that sense, I think the visuals are great because they give you so much information as a player. But mm-hmm. just on a, an, a on an aesthetic level, I, I agree with Leon that I think the series reaches much greater heights later on. Yeah, and obviously we're completely acknowledging the system that it was made for, the mm-hmm. time it was made for, but there are you know for me there are games which of the era look much more attractive if you take something like um head over heels on the spectrum or something like that you've got these incredibly ornate isometric graphics you know on a similarly underpowered machine so there were you know there were there were ways i, I realized resolutions may have been different on the famicom and so on but there, you get my point there are a few sprites uh kind of like the the mm. statues that lead you into the dungeons that always just yeah. kind of sit in that little entrance way that are so complicated and almost feel a little bit like over mm. overdrawn. Like it's hard to tell what they are by looking at them, but I, I kind of like that because they're like a magic eye puzzle. Like I would just sit there <laughs> staring at them and try to like figure out like, oh, maybe that's supposed to be its eye and that's supposed to be some sort of like wicked beak or something like that. And so yeah. I, I don't know, like something about that made this idea of like this whole like mysterious there be monsters type of uh appeal really come into it and definitely in those days the art you know the manual artwork full color in in a lot of Mm -hmm. cases not necessarily in europe supported the game and it had to because of the limitations of the i mean in a lot of computer games we only got a black and white cassette inlay with nothing in it but nintendo would do these these manuals with with concept art turned into promotional art um to support the game and to you know help fire off your imagination that was absolutely part of it going back to this one after playing you know uh, the later iterations of the, uh, the zelda games um it's i was really impressed by how much i mean the, the series seems to get a bit of a slagging off for like being the same but get going back uh to, to this nes one i was quite impressed by how they managed to get goma and dodongo and mm. uh, other kind of bosses that we'd seen in later you know um, ver- versions i keep saying versions but you know later um prequels yeah you know yeah later prequels in the series i was just, I, was, I was really surprised and like you know dig dogger and yeah like goma as well i was not expecting goma to turn up because obviously like the, likes the hand yeah. moblins keys i mean like the template was set for so much of this mm. um and although it doesn't have you know there's no chests that suddenly struck me because i was thinking yeah. God, mm. everything in this game is like the same as all the zeldas <laughs> mm. you know apart from maybe some of the design philosophy we'll come on to that um but there's no chests. In place weird. of the chests, though, they have that very clever uh, kind of those underground caverns where all the items are kept. Side on. And they're, yeah, they're kind of like, uh, they're painted in such a way and there's invisible walls. So you essentially have to play it like a, a like a 2D side-scrolling game. But it, it's not, mm. it's just the same layout. It's just kind of clever tricks of the, tricks of the eye. Yeah, I mean, the perspective of the, the sort of side on top down of the character means that you, yeah you can do that and th- that was sort of i mean it wasn't necessarily normal for a game to completely change its perspective in those days but but you could you know having in a, in a way having such simple sprites but you know that they existed in 2d so you couldn't just you know pan the camera around or, or you know the backdrop backdrop wasn't built out of a million polygons but yeah you could be creative by kind of um yes thinking outside the box thinking laterally or whatever um the sound 
so it, yeah, it's worth saying that the original disc version for the Famicom, um, the Famicom discs uh, had an extra channel of sound, or, the, or was it just the, the Japanese Famicom? I'm not sure. May may have been the disc system, but uh, but also they had extra storage because it was on a disc. Um, so the audio is is slightly uh, slightly more uh, opulent on the on that version. Interesting tidbits. Uh, I associated the the start of microphones and games uh, with things like Hey You Pikachu on mm. the N64 yeah. and then the the first DS had a microphone and you know they started putting in puzzles where you blow dust off things or blow a candle out and stuff C-Man. like that yeah oh yeah and Seaman of course yeah good point but back in 1986 the Famicom had microphones on its controllers mm-hmm. and um, there was an en- you know there's an enemy in the game uh, the Paul's voice if that's how you say it uh, which looks a bit like a kind of crazy rabbit and you can actually kill the enemy by shouting into your pad. Now they they had to change this, um, and the clue in the clue in the American version or Western versions, uh, say, saying that these enemies hated noise. Everyone took to assume that meant that you had to use the in-game flute or whistle mm. or recorder, depending on which translation. Um, but that doesn't do anything. Um, interestingly, they <laughs> you can you can kill them in the GBA version and the Japanese version by pressing select four times uh, <laughs> instead of shouting at them. But um, they changed in the other versions to make them weak to arrows. But that's a curious feature. Um, kind of reminds again, me of uh, Super Mario 3D World, how the little Goombas could be blown right off the stage if you were to blow into the microphone. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it's funny, these these little gimmicks that seem relatively new and fresh have been around for 30 years um and another thing like it was very common back in again back in the sort of formative 80s 8-bit days of, of computer gaming for um classical standards to be used in games i remember op- games opening with vivaldi or handel or Mussorgsky or Dvorak or some something like that and and koji kondo's plan was to actually have ravel's bolero um as the main theme for zelda um most people in the UK will probably know it best from uh, Torval and Dean's ice dance routine mm. in the Winter Olympics. Or it was also used in a, is it used in a a film, in a famous film scene, possibly a sex scene more recently? Anyway, they found out, or Koji Kondo found out right at the last minute that it was only published in 1928. And as such, it wasn't uh, public domain it was still under copyright so he had to uh, rush back to the studio and and uh, knock one out so to speak and that, and that was the Zelda overworld theme which uh, you may have heard so that's pretty just, just a few times yeah yeah it's yeah. uh yeah you know it is a classic bit of music there's quite a few similarities between uh, this Zelda and other Zeldas uh, when you use the the flute to teleport around the the world that little chime is also in Super Mario Brothers 3, which is also, right. if you slow it down, it's actually the intro to Ocarina of Time. So mm-hmm. the, the links between the links between mm-hmm. the, the two series, you know, they, they run deep if you're looking for them. And the fact that mm-hmm. the two games are developed side by side, yeah, Mario Brothers or Mario Bros and uh, The Legend of Zelda, but they were kind of like the opposites. But I, I, I really appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, there, there are these connections between the two. I'm amazed that the music in this game is essentially a rush job. Because it's so good, um, the I mean the the theme itself uh, it's become a classic. But the the music in the dungeons and and all yeah, of that, that stuff theme. it's very short, it's, but it's it's all great. I mean, there's not many tracks in this game, but they're all 
for you know for my money really great pieces of music mm. and and i find myself you know just glad that kochi kondo didn't get his way because mm. we would have been robbed of these really great pieces of music yeah the uh, the final dungeon has its own theme which again in the famicom disc version is uh, is has has more layers of percussion and things like that but um but that's that's quite a shock when you first get there it's got you know after nine dungeons i think of or eight or nine dungeons of the same uh, slightly haunting minor key hmm. uh, jingle refrain. You've you've then got this rather more uh, ominous kind of uh, crashing piece, which is which is a shock. I think it's cool that since the NES could only output so many layers of sound at once, yeah. that if you trigger a sound effect like uh, like gaining an item or opening your inventory menu, uh, kind of layers of the music would be temporarily dropped out, and yeah. so you can do yeah. like little. I know, it kind of feels like peeking behind the curtain a little bit. Like you can almost mm. kind of remix the music to your liking. See, that's an interest. That's an age thing because I'm nearly 20 years older than you. And that was just like, that was just a total <laughs> part of gaming back in the 80s. You know, games that had mm-hmm. more sound than their sound chips could handle. So it was like, yeah, I'm, I remember playing games with, you know, only the only the bass line playing and things like that because you were making too much noise with your sword and killing <laughs> enemies and stuff like that. So let's start. You get thrown into the open world. There is a cave. That's pretty much it. You are Link. You don't know what to do. Uh, you, th- I mean, even the f- that very first screen, it's interesting, isn't it? Because one part of you is thinking, I should probably go into this cave because it's the obvious thing to do on this screen. Mm-hmm. But then another part of you is thinking... What if it's dangerous? I haven't got anything. I can't do anything at this point. So, and that's kind of sets the tone for the, the yeah. game's philosophy as you go along. I half expect that guy to be standing outside the front door saying it's dangerous to go alone before you enter a cave. You know what I mean? Mm. It's, uh, but you know, that, that's, a, that's a classic line. But yeah, it is just um, instinct. And, you know, it's hard to tell if I'd have done that back in the day. I guess I would have done to go straight in there. But I, I imagine there's quite a few players that just, just wandered off and not actually yep. got the sword that my motto took away from us all. I think the overworld is a, a really cool design in that um, you do have that freedom of exploration. And like we were talking about earlier, uh, Miyamoto wanted this this idea of going on an adventure and finding all these secrets. And there were so many secrets littered all over the open world. Like there were, uh, there were of course, like essential secrets that you needed to find, um, but you could, you could bomb walls and find... Uh, little free Once rupee bonuses bombed. or you can you can find one guy who i really liked who uh asked you to pay for the door repair charge once you bombed your way into his cave <laughs> and actually like drew rupees from you and so it's like okay i'll remember not to go in there again but mm-hmm. um i think the only thing that i didn't like about that design was that the overworld felt a little too dangerous and mm, like yeah. i would have really yeah. loved just spending time exploring all the nooks and crannies and bombing the walls and, and, you know, tracing here and back. And because there's a lot of that, like you have to find the entrances to the dungeons and find all these secrets, but it just felt, especially in the later game, once you started introducing these kind of like centaur like enemies, it it felt like too big of a risk to spend a lot of time out in the open world. Mm. If you didn't know exactly where you were going to, and yeah, which is I, a yeah. normal which is a common trait of jrpgs and this is a japanese yeah that's well, true it's, i suppose it's an adventure role-playing game you know i remember playing games like star ocean and you just suddenly 
find yourself in a place that you really shouldn't be. And I suppose, you know, the Souls games, uh, first mention of the volume mm. for those, um, <laughs> certainly have moments like that in them. Yeah. And, and, and again, back in the 80s, you know, games did not tend to funnel you down a path. They tended to do this. They tended to just put you yeah. in a game and say, you know, work out what you're supposed to do. There might be an instruction manual. So it wasn't unusual for the time. So I suppose it's... Yeah, I would have preferred it's, if the challenge was kind of relegated to the dungeons, though, and the open world was mm. there were still a few enemies because it's kind of fun to, you know, swipe things with your sword. But it just felt mm. like, you know, there were, you know, eight little Octoroks on screen and there was one of the Zoras that were shooting lasers at you or something and just too much. Yeah, all and you once. only start with two or three hearts, which go in no time yeah. at this point. Yeah, I do understand the reasoning behind um, having quite lethal enemies in the overworld in that you know they're using those as a signpost of the dungeons in that area going hey maybe you're not ready for the dungeons over here and and i appreciated that this game kind of gave you the freedom to ignore that and go hey i'm skilled enough um i know how to counter these enemies i can go past these guys and and go on to these more difficult dungeons and get those done first um i i kind of liked the idea of using enemies as kind of a gate to Mm. the player's uh, progression rather than a literal gate or a door or what have you just having Mm. difficult enemies that if you're skilled enough and you're really good at the game you can get past and you can complete the harder dungeons but if you're not um, they act as a barrier, and um, and you're forced to go to the earlier dungeons and and do the, uh, do those first. Um, I I do get where Ryan's coming from at the same time in that because they're so lethal, a lot of secrets and a lot of stuff like the the blue ring, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, and stuff like that. I wouldn't have found I wouldn't have found those organically because I would have just mainline the game and and mm. try to get all the dungeons done without discovering those secrets because they are hidden behind some quite dangerous enemies but at the same time I just feel like this game respects the player in a way that I haven't really encountered in this series before mm. I, I I agree with that like the enemy stopping you from progressing but some of the obtuse puzzles also get in the way of you know progression and I oh, found that true. if I run yeah. if I run into a dead end and there was a bunch of statues that I wasn't too sure of what to push or attack I'd get attacked by a Zora in the lake and feel like well what am I supposed to do in this kind of you know part of Hyrule like am I supposed to do something with these six statues probably because I know how the series works but again like trying to work out that there's some shrubberies that you can burn, but they all look the same. And it's kind of like when you wander yeah. into this screen yeah, and yeah. you get bombarded with all these tough enemies, it kind of puts you off going back. Whereas like some other games that do a similar thing, they kind of encourage you to go back because, you know, because of modern game design, basically. But, you know, now like playing Zelda now in 2015, it was just like, man, like, can I, am I supposed to go this way and find, you know, this dead mm. end again with all these enemies? because there's a puzzle here or am I not supposed to be here? So, you know, it, it kind of swung both ways for me in terms of like, yeah. um, you know, th- these enemies are really hard, go away, but also the puzzles are a bit rubbish. And should I be going back and trying to solve these puzzles or am I not ready for this yet? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I will admit there are some enemies in the open world that are just irritating and aren't, you know, challenging in a fun way. Mm. I I despise the Zoras that just shoot at you yeah. in the water. You can only and, kill them if you've got full health, uh, yeah. generally, or or if they're up against the shore. If you've got full yeah. health, uh, Link... Can you uh, kill them another... on the raft? I don't know if I ever used the raft to, like, get over... You can only use the raft in certain places, That's can't you? Okay, so. yeah. Yeah. yeah, but um, I mean, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of any of the enemies that can shoot you in this game. But the Zoras, no. because they're so just persistent throughout the whole game, they kind of represent that kind of, oh, just stop shooting <laughs> at me while I'm dealing with these guys. Yeah, yeah, you know, if you had kind of, I really appreciate the fact that the shield does work, but I was never 100% sure if I was in control of it or not yeah. if i managed to bounce uh you know a zora blob that was that was good because you know i, I must have lucked out on that time but there was never a hundred percent action agency from me that no. i was going to bounce the shield off so like you can't just hold it like in no, a souls that, game and say it. that shield is currently like, active yeah, yeah. I, mean, like, yeah. Uh, I even felt more confident in link to the past holding the shield and again that's, oh, that's, yeah, that's all around to like mechanics and game design of that era but you know, I had to go by what I felt like in 2015 and, you know, holding that shield. I just, I just didn't feel like I'd rather have just held a waffle in front of my face and just hoped that that was a more, <laughs> uh, you know, convenient thing to block the shots because I just had no control over it whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the game doesn't tell you that your shield's upgradable by by a factor of two or three, your sword's upgradable uh, two or three times. Um, you can find a blue ring. Josh has already mentioned it. And right at the end, or, well, not necessarily at the end, if you've decided to pop into Dungeon 10 at the start of the game, <laughs> um, good luck with that. But you can get uh, an even power, more powerful ring, which reduces damage further. It would make the rest of the game considerably less difficult. I, I assume that alongside Miyamoto's desire to make people discuss their experience and talk about what they've seen and what they've found, much as you know people do with... RPGs now, Witchers and Dark Souls and whatever else. I assume, and because this again was a normal thing for people to do back in the 80s, and remember, people had spent $60 on a game just like they do now, mm. but that was like the equivalent of a lot of money, like three times what it is now or something like that. So there was no... Selling a game that you could finish in an afternoon would not have been considered the same kind of merciful relief as it is sometimes now it would have been considered a massive ripoff by and large by 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 the consumers on the whole so these games rpgs adventure games um arcade adventures as we used to call them i'm thinking about side on things like starquake and the ultimate games that have recent you'll have recently seen some of them on uh, rare replay these were meant to be mapped by mm. you by hand you were meant to you weren't supposed to go online and seek out an faq you were supposed to draw your own map with pencil, maybe on graph paper, and make notes about everything you've seen and done. And that was the experience. The experience wasn't what what we tried to do as as you know, grown men in our twenties and thirties and forties, trying to get through a game to complete it in time to talk about it on a podcast. <laughs> this was designed to. This was going to be like maybe your one game purchase for a year or six months, and you were supposed to sit down and you know, wring every last drop out of it, cane it and rinse it, but do it all for yourself, maybe with the help of conversation with uh, peers, maybe in the playground if you're a kid, maybe Nintendo Power if your parents would buy it for you. But it's the way, it's like, you know, I'm not, in a way, I'm not saying, well, you know, this game gets a pass on some of its annoyances because of all that stuff, because I think I 
if I, you know, I was playing games in 1986, I didn't play this one, I would have found a lot of things about this game very frustrating even then. However, the philosophy of design behind it, as well as being of its time in terms of not being a Metroidvania in most senses, like it doesn't say, well, here's this thing and you're obviously going to need this thing and it it just doesn't guide you at all. Mm. But the philosophy in terms of, right, here's your game world, you work it out, that's your game, that is your game. Mapping it and working out what's where and how to get things and what order to do things, that is the game as much as walking up down left right you know this is a character who can't even move on diagonals he can't attack on diagonals Mm -hmm. the actual interface with the game is incredibly simplistic so the game is the mapping and the exploration yeah it really is like like uh, the kind of the anti-mario where you know the mario was left to right linear as as they come and this was just like yeah just run around a bit and see what happens yeah so he got to admire their their bravery for doing a game like this and i'm sure adventure was out before this but you know the um yeah, this game definitely kind of puts a lot of um, onus on the player to to solve it. And uh, but you know, I always wonder what those notes um, sections were in instruction manuals for, because you know, you, mm. you buy Toe Jam and L, and you, you, I don't think you'd write anything down in the notes there, because you know it is an adventure <laughs> game, but it's not as obtuse as what Zelda is. So, yeah. uh, and I have played Zelda games since, and had my own little notepad next to me, and gone mm. right, you know, to top left of the Hyrule, and you know, on Link to the Past, there's a vulnerable wall. So. I can totally see why. Yeah, but you've the, been given a clue by the game there, which yeah. is what this one doesn't do. Yeah. So as you say, some of your experience of doing what I've just said about of mapping the game and finding everything would involve burning every bush and <laughs> yeah. bombing every wall. And that that would have, to, for me, that would have sucked in 1986. Yeah it, doesn't, yeah. yeah, it doesn't sound fun no matter how old or when you played it. Yeah. But what is interesting about that freeform nature that, you know, we'll hear from some correspondents in a bit, some of who uh, think that the fact that Zelda's become more more of a, you know, an authored, controlled experience is not necessarily for the better because it does allow you to tackle the game in the way you wish. And, mm. and that's that's nice. I mean, it's more like, I suppose the philosophy would be more like something like an Elder Scrolls game today. But that's different. I mean, you know, Oblivion, the way Oblivion tackled that Elder Scrolls 4 was to have the game world level with you. Mm-hmm. But then in Skyrim, I certainly found that I would, you know, do ve- pretty much you're doing exactly the same thing, albeit the graphics are, you know, amazingly more beautiful. You'll go, you, you're wandering around a big open world. There are scary monsters who can kill you pretty much at any point if you meet the wrong one. You go into a cave, the enemy there is too hard, you die. It's not so different, is it? No, no, not at all. And, you know, um, you know, maybe later Zelda games, which we will talk about in a year's time, have been too heavy-handed <laughs> on, hot, you know, guiding the player. But I think, mm. yeah, this is like the extreme opposite. And it is, it, it, every yeah. game kind of needs a little bit of direction, you know, no matter, no matter how early or you know, later. Yeah. You know, you do, need, you do need a little pointer somewhere. I think they kind of go back to this sort, this uh, design with uh, a link between worlds on the 3DS, which we'll cover mm. at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that kind of level of uh, of guidance is kind of the happy medium for me, where it was just like, okay, we'll show you where you need to go, but you can tackle these in whatever order you want. Whereas here, it's so obtuse. It's so lacking in direction that, I mean, uh, 
Leon, you mentioned the Elder Scrolls games. At least those games point you in a direction, even yeah. if it's like walk across the entire map and discover <laughs> all these other things along the way. It still points you somewhere. Yes, Whereas with yes. this, there's just nothing whatsoever. Yeah, it says you need to go to this town, this castle to progress the story. Whereas this first Legend of Zelda, there are 10 numbered dungeons out there. You can access mm. virtually all of them from the start. It does. Fortunately, it does at least tell you when you're when you've entered them, what level you're in. That's mm-hmm. one bit of signposting. So you can pretty much, you know, again, if you were mapping it for yourself on paper, you can literally write right. There's a gate to a dungeon there, a cave. That's number one. That's number five. That's number seven. And it, you can deduce from that that you probably don't want to tackle them out of order. However, there is a risk reward element because you might get like more, you know, powered up arrows or something like that earlier in the game than you might otherwise the game has a map in the top left corner it has a it has a gray block in which a smaller square would roam around inside and i don't think i ever filled it out with color other than it just being gray and it's a missed opportunity like just any kind of color Mm -hmm. within that gray rectangle would have given me a notification of where i've been or where i should be going because like if it was still gray then i hadn't been there yet you know I, i like the idea of cartography and you know making notes yourself but at the same time if you're gonna take up a third of the screen with the hud and a giant gray rectangle give me more than that a little bit please yeah but again 8-bit uh very very underpowered console i mean phantom hourglass added the one what i thought was one wonderful the note making on your map on mm, your touch mm, screen yeah, and stuff yeah. and obviously etri and the etri and odyssey games on the ds series um you know uh incorporate kind of map making tech as well don't they i think so that's certainly something that some people want to do. Um, I think the on-screen map is, I don't, yeah, I, I think it's more of a hindrance than a help a lot of the times because mm-hmm. it's hard to actually work out how these, even though it's all just rectangles, there's nothing confusing. Everything's like screen ratio, but it, yeah, it can just get really confusing as to which screens link to which and why, when you're in a dungeon in particular, I mean. Now the dungeons as microcosms were fairly linear. And so it was just the overworld that, you know, people could get lost in. But as I was playing it through, I had, you know, just from the internet, a giant map of the overworld. And that was kind of fun because like it wasn't Mm. helpful enough to where I could just like, I I mean, it didn't respond to me and like where I was in the game and it didn't give me that little like you are here. And so it was kind of like a fun little micro game to look at the map and try to identify like find landmarks on my screen and then look over at the map and say oh yeah there's that little pocket of trees or that little cliffside <laughs> i think i know where i am kind of like a like following a real map so yeah i don't know if if maps uh, to that degree were available back in the day if nintendo printed them off on posters or anything like that but i found that to be quite an enjoyable experience yeah i don't think you got a map in the box i think you got some stickers in the box certainly with the original release um (laughs) but i'm not sure how much help they would have been uh yeah i mean there was a there was a link to the past map in the box Mm -hmm. um they'd certainly you know got into that idea um yeah paper and cloth maps in boxes were definitely a thing um but yeah as i say i think i think the idea was, I suspect that Miyamoto and Tezco wanted people to to plot out their own map. And yeah. That was a kind of RPG thing to do back yeah. in 1986. It's too easy to forget that this was the first Zelda. And, you know, and I have to judge it on what I played now, as I keep saying, but you, this yeah. was the first one. And fair enough for them to even, you know, 
like I said before, just be brave enough to do that and <laughs> kind of, you know, and, and let, let it flourish from that point. One of the things that interested me about the game, and as I say, I was uh, looking at walkthroughs from, from the off, was as well as learning that you could get to the latter stages without ever picking up the sword and you could do things in all kinds of orders. Uh, the order that I decided to do things was uh, the one where you get as strong as you possibly can before you even start tackling the dungeons, <laughs> which uh, should smooth progress along quite a bit, although it sounds like my game time at around 15 hours was considerably longer than josh's at 10 mm. so i'm not sure what that says about our relative play styles mine but, was about um, 11 and a half with mm. you know saves coming and a bit of walk for in near the end yeah somewhere between the two ryan any idea uh no it was oh, maybe three or four sittings but i don't know how long each one was right but yeah, so I went, my tack was to find bombs straight away to get as many heart containers as were available in the world. And again, bear in mind, uh, people who haven't been back to this one or didn't play at the time, it's not like the Zeldas of the last, well, 20 years where you can see heart pieces in the world, but you can't get to them. Actually, mm. it is. There is one or two. There is at least one of those. There's one that you need the ladder for that's out on an island. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And that, that sort of, that, that little bit there is kind of a great indicator of every, you know, the the amount of times you first fly around an area of, of Ocarina of Time or something and you see that glistening heart piece and you're like, how the heck do you get that? <laughs> um, but in this case, you can actually get a lot of them simply by, yeah, finding finding a room, uh, you know, some obscure room. You can upgrade your sword before you take on a dungeon. You can get the top shield. You can get arrows and medicine. Medicine becomes absolutely essential um well for me it did later in the game and that blue ring that that reduces your damage by half so i got all of that sorted um before i even took on the first dungeon yeah it, I, I guess it for me it felt a bit like the equivalent of um you know doing a bit of grinding before going mm -hmm. into a into a new area in a, in in bloodborne or something mm. and it was interesting to me how although this game has no xp no actual leveling up a lot of the things that you need are behind a paywall basically it's a rupee barrier mm. now just randomly killing enemies doesn't it's not like a, a a standard jrpg with with random battles where everything gives you xp you know which decreases as you fought that enemy a number of times this is sometimes some enemies will drop money rupees and you might need to collect up to like 250 of these or something to to get a certain item and the enemies don't regenerate just when you leave one screen either you have to leave you have to go several screens away before the enemies start coming back mm. so it's not even like later zeldas where you can just hang around say in hyrule field in ocarina of time and just keep killing stalfosses if you want um so it, it adds a whole kind of again like a you know a, a kind of marching across the map search scouring the land for rupees kind of treasure hunting adventuring feel the rupees by the way are i think the identical sprite to the um the gold ingots in miyamoto's earlier game klukulu land oh they are yeah yeah you're right <laughs> yeah. i found together. in my adventure that uh and, and it kind of triggered a memory of me reading about it earlier but i'm not remembering the source of where i read it from but um whether or not in item was dropped by a slain enemy wasn't entirely random like there were mm. factors that went into and so i would find as i was you know save state abusing that 
if I went into a room and laser beamed an enemy, he'd drop a, an item every single time. And if I mm. went in and just hit him with a sword, then he wouldn't drop an item. Right. And just all these little mm. things. And, uh, and you know, it, it was very, like, I, dependent on so many factors. And, gosh, I, I wish I could find that old article that explained it to me, like all of the numbers and everything behind how they determined what was dropped and how that could be abused. But um, kind of an interesting read if people are into the minutiae of it all that reminds mm. me of finding out when you could you know control the ghosts in pac-man there's like a literal science to it where if you did mm, you know, yeah. a certain yeah, pattern right. you could literally like abuse the game yeah I, say, I didn't know that that's quite interesting well yeah there's one screen where the old man you find the old man in one of his uh dens and he says uh the 10th monster has the bomb i think mm. i was reading up about this because it didn't seem to make a lot of sense and again it's probably slightly mistranslated or something although i think the game's been retranslated at least once since the first translation which was full of muddiness um the 10th enemy has the bomb apparently refers to uh, forgive me if i get this wrong people who know it but it's something along the lines of if you kill the 10th enemy in a row with a bomb you get a bomb back <laughs> so there's mm. no point to doing it there's no point to being given that clue but it, there it is nonetheless very strange yeah, yeah one thing that really interested me um i read this somewhere i don't know I, I don't think i'd ever read it before but it makes sense was that the legend of zelda started as a dungeon building game hmm. so you almost like being a dungeon master like like dungeon in dungeon master the 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 modern new game zelda was going to be the big launch title for the famicom disk system so obviously you had rewritable floppies so you could actually save stuff they wanted to take advantage of this you know as they still do to this day you release a new machine you show off its usps whatever so zelda was a creation tool that may let you make and share your own dungeons does this sound like anything that nintendo <laughs> produced <laughs> no recently? not at all so Somewhere along the way, Miyamoto and co. decided they could make better dungeons than us lowly gamers and <laughs> dropped the do-it-yourself <laughs> angle. Now, this is so funny to me because um, you know, it's something that's come up in discussion recently. People have um, bemoaned the search tools on Super Mario Maker and the the surfeit, the glut of play them levels that play themselves or levels that are too hard. Josh actually said, you know, I preferred a Nintendo authored experience because these people can't make. Now, actually, I think there's some amazing Super Mario Maker levels mm. out there mm -hmm. and Nintendo are obviously making moves to try to make them easier to find. And another fascinating thing is Nintendo designers are now making Super Mario Makers under fake names and putting them on Super Mario Maker. So you can Brilliant. play Nintendo designed levels on Super Mario Maker. But I think this is so interesting that 30 years after this, after deciding that the punters couldn't make better dungeons than them. They, <laughs> they let they set them loose on uh, on Super Mario. Imagine games. the search tools for the Zelda Maker back in the day, though. It would yeah. have been you know a, a hundred times harder to find a decent dungeon. <laughs> but you know, it's quite interesting because people were talking about a Zelda Maker after Super Mario Maker, and I think like there's a fan group out there who are making it that's probably got a, a cease and desist already. But you know, it's quite interesting to know that Nintendo. I've always had the idea before we have. <laughs> it's just that I think they've always had the foresight to go, actually, let's just put it on hold for a little while. And, you know, they do that with a lot of their things, like peripherals and other ideas. They just kind of go, maybe not yet. And that they have kind of um, a, a weird knack and foresight to just bring it back, uh, you know, a more convenient time. Yeah, I mean, this wasn't an online system either. So this would have been, you know, you're making and saving your dungeons for you and possibly like your mate coming around or something. Or I suppose you might have been able to swap the disc with a friend or something like that. I'm not sure, but um, 
it wouldn't have been, you know, like search and download. If they'd brought it to the Satellaview version, dungeon mm. designing, mm-hmm. that could have worked. But uh, yeah, very interesting. Anyway. And due to the success of Super Mario Maker, there's been discussion recently about like what other kind of Maker games. Because, you know, I feel like Super Mario Maker, whether it sells well this holiday season or not, is going to be one of those kind of cornerstone Nintendo uh, mm-hmm. releases um, as we look back in its history in 20 years or whatever, you know, I, I think that more is going to come from this. And, you know, one of the ones that people are really putting forward is like, we'd love to see a Zelda maker. And to think we could have almost had exactly that, you know, however many years ago. years ago. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I think Nintendo <laughs> uh, beat everybody to the punch by making a swastika dungeon already. So nobody else can uh, <laughs> it's a shock people with it. It is a yeah. Manji, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should say uh, all the, the dungeons in the first uh, Legend of Zelda, and there are uh, 10 of them. Is that right? No, there's nine of them. Levels, aren't they? Yeah, you go in there. It always put me off when I went into a dungeon and it said level one. It, like, it's just so blasé about the whole affair. It's just like, yeah, it's just level one now. And you're like, what? That, yeah. I understand the uh, the reasoning, but I've always treated like Zelda dungeons as like sit down and get involved like kind of epic moments you know like oh sure you know you, you want to get involved in these things but it's like yeah it's just level three <laughs> 29 years ago exactly yeah wording's completely different yeah but yes uh, and they're all named after they're, they're all in the shape of a different creature or thing uh, the eagle the moon the manji the snake the lizard the dragon the demon the lion the entrance to death and yes the manji is a is a, a reverse swastika which is of course a buddhist uh it's something which it's actually it suggests something nice doesn't it i think the yeah. nazis corrupted that symbol but yes still a little startling to see yeah <laughs> yeah up on my map sc- as soon as you get that map and you see that flash up on your screen you're like ooh, okay yeah yeah <laughs> here we are <laughs> yeah i wanted to talk a little more about the dungeons because uh i think ultimately the way i played because i was abusing save states and walkthroughs i spent more time in dungeons than in the overworld I think mm. I spent more time reloading a save state. <laughs> Just, well, yeah. You know, get, get, getting knocked that's out by an, I, another enemy. Was... That's kind of what I wanted to talk about. Because it, by the end, even with having all the items in the game, some of the screens in the later dungeons are just yeah. horrible, I thought. Yeah. Just no fun at all. Just that's madness. The enemies roam in a fair... There are, there are some patterns to their behaviour... But it tends to be a little, it's not predictable. There's no, they don't give you a sign when they're going to turn a corner. You have to attack some of them from certain sides. Some of them take off enormous amounts of health. Mm -hmm. Um, Occasionally the game gets blighted with slowdown, which is actually, because the emulation's accurate, even though obviously the system, you know, the Wii U could run it without a slowdown. Mm -hmm. So I I like the fact they've kept that in. But that's actual merciful release because when they're just, when all these whiz robes and whatever are just bombarding you with these magical beams. Yeah. And then there's likey likes in the screen or like likes, um, which can eat your shield. Um, And the worst thing, this, like one of the articles I read for research for this podcast was sort of saying in objective terms, this game is, you know, is bad design. Now, we really try very hard to avoid that because some people love this game. So mm-hmm. can it actually be objectively bad? I don't think you can say that. It is, you know, it, it definitely shows its age it's of, of its time. But I can see that most people probably coming to this game now would find some of those rooms in the dungeons where not only have you got all the things I've, I just mentioned, but also those bubble enemies, which <laughs> just bumble around the screen 
just yeah. knocking into you multiple <laughs> times, and they stop you from being able to attack. <laughs> I mean, it's nice that they don't take off any health, but you know, even so, they leave you defenseless. In some ways, for... they're worse though yeah. because of that because they'll they'll bump you into enemies that will take off your health, mm. and then you lose that opportunity to you know get a counter attack in there, and because they disable your attack, that by far those little white blobby things are the most irritating thing in the game one of the most irritating things in all games and yeah and and I, and I also think while while I while I stand by what I say that this is a subjective matter um I would say that there are games from the early late 70s and early 80s which I will still play now because they are fun because you have control Robotron Pac-Man Gallagher all these asteroids all these classics because the control is sufficient and the enemy behavior is, you know, you can you can understand it, you can work yeah. around it, you can be skillful enough to beat it. But some of these rooms in, in Zelda and that last dungeon is just massive as well. It's mm -hmm. just room after room after room of stuff. And yeah, if I hadn't used the walkthrough to get all the items and stuff, I, I don't I can't see that I ever would have finished that game without saves coming either. Yeah. One of the enemies that really threw me off in the dungeons was like it was like a bee surrounded by bees and it would just be mm. around you for ages and I was like how am I supposed to do anything with this and like again I was just safe scumming my way around this thing and trying to like yeah. I, like I appreciate really good enemy design and I don't think that the Legend of Zelda has you know it has some good enemy design but for the most part I just found them just annoying and kind of like obstacles I think there are some good enemies, yeah. and I think there are some good enemies in isolation. Um, for example, I think the Dart Nuts can be fun when they're on their own, yeah. and it's just about you kind of negotiating their movement patterns and yeah. trying to get behind them. But when you combine the Dark Nuts mm. with the statues that shoot at you, yeah. suddenly that room <laughs> becomes a frustrating mess yeah. of, oh, I'm trying to position myself in front, you know, behind the Dark oh it, sh it shot me and pushed me in the path of another one and um, it's taken off like f you know two hearts or what have you it's just certain combinations are so frustrating and the other thing is that I found that a lot of these enemies are vulnerable to almost nothing so you've yeah, by the end of the yeah. game you've got this massive arsenal and a lot of them you can't do anything with them unless you've got the the like the best sword because everything else just like bounces off them which is again something that they really in in the, the the later games, they they really took and run with the idea that you can do different things to different enemies with different tools. Not necessarily the best thing, but you might be able to confuddle them with a boomerang or something like that. You know? Yeah. It's the yeah, like Josh said, it's the combination of enemies that kind of really like stresses me out in a in a in a bad way. Uh, the you know the statues, the Armos, they, they sort of scoot around the the screen like uh, like no other. Like at least like the um, the Tektites and the, the other enemies in, in in Hyrule, they kind of have an animation to them. They kind of have a bob and a flow. But those statues, when you accidentally bump into one of them, and then you you know you try and awkwardly try and hit them with your sword, and then you end up bumping into another one. You've got like four of them scooting around the screen at you. It's um yeah, it's not a it's not a great experience, and it, it kind of. I don't know, it doesn't feel very Nintendo-like in places. You know, like, if you think of the Goomba and the, the Koopa Trooper and all that, like, I don't know, the, the fact that they're, come, they're developed side by side, I, I was kind of thinking... Yeah, it's that a lot they, less friendly. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you'd think there'd be a bit more elegance in the enemy design, but... The later De Zelda dungeons are already more like the Lost Levels than they are, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the other enemy that really frustrated me, and I think Leon kind of mentioned them already, but the Wizards... Mm. Um, 
were awful. Yeah, yeah. I I like the the orange ones where they <laughs> teleport in, do an attack because that feels that you know that kind of feels cool. Just like predicting where they're going to teleport and then attacking them before they're going to attack. But the blue ones are just wander around randomly and then take multiple hits. Take multiple hits and they do so much damage if you're not concentrating those guys are the worst and you combine them with the white blobby things that we've already mentioned and then it's just i i how many times i had to repeat one room using the save states and i would save state uh after defeating every single wizard as well i'm afraid i did the same (laughs) yeah i i defeat one wizard right okay i've made a little bit of progress i'm gonna save here yeah and and then you're down to the one and you're like oh god it's just like even even one is still a threat if those white blobby things which by the way you can never kill you can't kill those white blobby things and that that wizard if those guys are still present is still a threat and it's Mm -hmm. just so frustrating and health doesn't drop with the frequency in which you can rely on you know mm-hmm. being able to be uh you know pick up uh, some hearts or some fairies in the next room and be okay if you lose a load of health to these wizards you that's your run through of you know that temple ruined always in a take lot of ways. Uh, always take red medicine into any yeah. dungeon uh 68 rupees for two shots of full health um but yeah. even then yeah they can still get they can still get testy. You have to really have to think about when you're gonna, when you're gonna pop the seal on that medicine mm. and take your first glug. I was quite impressed to see in dungeons uh, the wall master, as it's known, is that the hand, hand that scared yeah. the life out of me in Forest Temple. And I was like, oh, that mm. actually, that, you know, that was around in the eighties. That's amazing. Yeah, that yeah, loads they, of them were, yeah. And apparently, uh, before it was implemented in game, it was meant to be a hand that come out the wall and grabbed Link into the wall and put Hence you back at the, the start. Name. Yeah, it's a. Uh, you know, there's a lot of interesting things about the original Legends of Zelda, and I'm really, really glad that I played it. But, you know, enduring it, as we just ex- expressed then, was a, yeah. was a test of my patience on a train <laughs> full of people. It's so nice to see uh, a room, when you walk into a room and it's just the bats, the keys, or the or the yeah. slimes, <laughs> and you know that it's actually going to be like, you know, splat, 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 and you can kill them with a boomerang, and the boomerang does that thing where you can, it comes back towards you. Um, mm. like the one in Spelunky you yeah. know so you can go if you jump higher and but the bats between you and the boomerang it will come through mm. it'll come through and kill it on the way back stuff like that and again things that would have been genuinely sensational playing it 30 years ago for the first time stuff like being able to light up a darkened room with a candle that was or so magi- cool. an upgraded magic wand yeah, that transition mm. from a light room to a dark room like I don't know it's really yeah. cool yeah. it still looks nice yeah. and the, the, the enemy you talked about which is called the Patra uh, Darren with mm-hmm. the spinning uh, enemies that you have to kill first the, there's one version of that where it's kind of spinning in a like it looks like in an ellipse so it's kind of looks like it's um spinning in 3d yeah. kind of yeah. thing and again just re- you know smooth sprite movement and a, and a sense of depth and again stuff like that it's so easy to just take it for granted now because it's 2015 and we have ridiculous graphics mm. um, but little touches like that would have been genuinely you know even if the game wasn't necessarily state-of-the-art visuals and stuff even in 1986 it would have had all these cool touches that would have made people fall in love with it which you know which clearly happened with the reviews and the response to the game being being what it was despite all these frustrations that they must have had you know trying to get to the actual the end of the thing Hmm. well one of the things about the dungeons that i found frustrating although thinking back to it i can't really decide whether i like it or not 
I, I kind of like, I have arguments on both sides, but uh, they did change it for all of the other Zelda games, so I, I guess they must have thought better of it. But the keys are universal, and so mm. you can find yourself in a dungeon without any yeah. keys, and so you'd have to go Small back into key. a previous dungeon and, uh, you know, try, or you can go out and buy keys from shopkeepers, but it's an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and there is an item which you don't necessarily have to wait to the end of the game to get, which mm. is the master key, which is you know unlocks every door um, mm. without having to collect them. And it you know getting that maybe I'm not sure exactly what sequence. I don't know if you you can sequence break that one to to how much of a degree, but um, it's certainly even in the uh, that final dungeon. If if you oh, get yeah. that, then <laughs> it saves a ton of a ton yep. of work. A uh, ton of rooms you don't have to do. Yeah, just about is... halves your spelunk through that one. Yeah, which is much, much needed, much appreciated. Another mercy is uh, if you, talking of enemy drops, you manage to, to see the stopwatch, which is a kind of, it's a traditional uh, sort of, I suppose you'd associate it more with old arcade games or platform games. But mm. Ryan, yeah, odd to see it here, right? Yeah, it's... It feels a little like out of the time period. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm. Uh, maybe I don't really know that much about stopwatches. But it, it just it feels like a really modern item in this like kind of medieval <laughs> adventure. But it makes no sense. It's magic, I suppose. Yeah, that's I guess thing. That's it's true. a magic pocket watch. Maybe let's say. But yeah, um, I suppose the, the 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 tech of Zelda has always been slightly. I always really appreciate when I got one of those, like I would just zip around and try to, you know, slice through mm. all the enemies before they ever unfroze. So I never got to see whether or not they do unfreeze after a certain amount of time. Do they? Does anyone know? I think they do. Yeah, I think they okay. do. I never gave them the chance, though. Yeah, that's it. It's you're running away. Uh, I'm wondering if the stopwatch is like a hangover from when the game was meant to do more with time and, you know, time travel. I wonder um, if it's yeah, just, maybe. Because, like, you know... The series has always had a connection with traveling through time and, you know, manipulating time, you know, Majora's Mask and you know, time and all that. I suspect it was also just a means to an end, you know, yeah. it's a device that means you can stop the ridiculous amount of irritating sprites from moving for a bit. Yeah, yeah but it is a bit wild, uh, weird just to see a, a, a clock on the screen, you know, and it, it is a video game, so it is what it is. But yeah, also Link just starts flashing like he's having a rave and it's just, oh, it's just a bit crazy. Totally. It was, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, it was an utterly bog standard item in action games in the 80s and 90s. Mm. You know, you collect a stopwatch, the enemy stop. It's just like, yeah, it's just to me, it was just, yep, <laughs> that that works. But yeah, mm -hmm. you're, you're right, actually, it, it does sort of stand out as, as an actual yeah, But it is an enemy drop and it's not a usable item. So you can't really mm. like structure your play strategy around it too much. It's just kind no. of a nice little bonus when it does arrive yeah definitely another nice little bonus when it does arrive well again it probably would have been or it might have made you weep actually thinking about it um, <laughs> i think people were generally stunned though when well, i've already mentioned it ura zelda or other zelda uh mm. this kind of um new game plus uh it's basically well, it's a new game you know it's 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 the exact same game but different it's a remix they did it again later with ocarina of time and the and the uh the master quest as it became known mm -hmm. um but yeah again if you if you loved this game and you were kind of sad that it had just ended and you didn't have 50 pounds or 60 dollars to buy a new car you'd have probably been fairly overjoyed if like me i mean i knew about it but if like me, you're you're completing this thirty year old game for a sense of closure and to talk sure. about it in a podcast. 
I can't see myself hitting uh, Urazelda anytime soon. Yeah, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but a fantastic inclusion that was. Pro- it's the thing about it is it's properly uh, it's properly redesigned. It's not mm. just a it's not just a randomized you know version or whatever. It was they wanted to fill up the cart with stuff the 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 ROM chips they had. So they said, oh well, we can can put in new coordinates for all these items and, mm. and put different monsters in different rooms and whatever else and and there you have it you can play it without completing the game if you just uh type your name in as zelda i don't know if i like that because i feel like zelda just that word being on the box like that kind of feels like the name you're supposed to enter i know like maybe mm. in hindsight now that we're fans of the series we name ourselves link but it feels mm. a little too easy to just accidentally name yourself zelda and launch into a much harder <laughs> mode yeah, that's probably true. I wonder how many people did that. <laughs> you know, the, the, one of the most famous things about the series is that when people see an advert for a Zelda game, they assume that the protagonist is called <laughs> Zelda. And you mm. know, it is a thing that's you know that's, uh, I've spoken to many people about, and it's also it's kind of a joke now, like oh, you still call it Zelda or something like that, you know. But yeah. at, at, back in the eighties, when the series was fresh, I imagine there are some people out there whose first experiences are Ura Zelda and. Uh, yeah, I'd like to speak to those people. All the tweets that are uh, rejoicing because Linkle now made Zelda a girl. You beat me to, to the Linkle reference mm, there, sorry. Ryan. Yes, we'll, we'll come back to Linkle in a, maybe a year and a half time. <laughs> Linkle. Right, uh, of course we've heard from some members of our excellent community, uh, ever faithful and reliable uh, listeners and posters at canerince.com slash forum. Uh, we also have an email address, which doesn't get used that much, but if you like to email, podcast at canerince.com. Electric Crocosaurus is a, a returning correspondent, and he says, The Legend of Zelda has a special place in my heart, as it was my very first video game. My memories are, therefore, extremely hazy, but I can remember my dad setting up the NES in the spare room at Christmas and booting the console up. I don't know why he bought a NES for me, as to my mind, I'd never expressed any interest in video games until that point. I can't have been much older than five or six, or possibly even younger, so I'm sure my dad would have been surprised if he'd known that 25 years later I'd still be playing this children's hobby. Nice story. Chase210 says, uh, I was seven years away from being born in 1986, so the original Zelda passed me by a tad, but I have played it. Since I got it through the 3DS Ambassador program, I've tried to play it through several times, and to be honest, it stumps me. I'd prefer not to use a walkthrough of any kind, but without one, I find the whole thing to be ridiculously obtuse to play. Sure, it's an adventure, but some kind of hint or a vague direction to walk in would be nice. First time I played it, I'm pretty sure I missed the sword, in fact. In four years, I've only ever played through two dungeons, with the help of a walkthrough, and although I can't say those dungeons are truly bad, in my head I constantly compare them to superior Zelda experiences we now have. On the plus side, I don't think it looks at all bad for an NES game. Maybe it's just me, but I like how, even though it's so old, it almost instantly identifies itself as a Zelda game to me. The music helps. I understand being able to save in the game was a pretty novel concept back in the day, so that's one. Galopinto. Is it Italian? I'm not sure. The Zelda franchise is my favourite franchise in video games, and Ocarina of Time is my favourite game of all time. That being said, I really didn't have much of a history with the original Legend of Zelda on NES. I have vague memories of playing it as a four or five year old. And then in high school, I tried using save states to cheese my way through some of the dungeons on an emulator. 
As a result of the podcast, I got it for the virtual console for my 3DS and really enjoyed the first few hours. The whole map is open for you to explore and you have to be really smart in how you attack enemies because there isn't much margin for error. I like that because Link only has a stab attack, you have to be really precise in combat. Starting around dungeons 5 and 6 though, the difficulty ramped up in a way that I didn't think was very much fun. Even though the Blue Knights and the Teleporting Wizards were hard, I thought they were a good type of challenge. Once you learned strategies for fighting them, or found more heart containers and stronger swords, you got better at defeating them. The stuff I didn't like was having one room filled with the monsters that permanently destroy your magic shield, and then filling the next room with enemies and torches that shoot fireballs at you. Fireballs that can only be blocked by that just destroyed and very expensive magic shield. I'm really interested in how people figured out some of the hints and clues before the internet. I'd originally pledged to beat the game without looking online, but had to give that up. I had fun with some of the puzzles, like the directions for the Lost Woods and walking through the waterfall, but I never would have figured out how to enter Dungeon 7 or what to do with the meat. Did a ton of people just get stuck and never beat the game? Overall, I liked a bunch of things that this game did, and I loved seeing the original blueprint for this fantastic series. Having said that, I don't think I'll ever come back and play it again. Fair enough, Gallo Pinto. Mikiel K, our Dutch correspondent and, uh, and new blog contributor as well, says my undying love for the console Zelda games really started with a link to the past, but me and my brother did indeed own and complete The Legend of Zelda for our NES before we sold off console games and accessories to get ourselves a SNES. Up until that time, I'd played on the Philips Video Pack, the Atari 7800, the Acorn Electron, the Commodore 64, and the MSX, and had inserted my first coins in an arcade cabal too. But the NES, a second-hand one with 30-plus games, was the first gaming machine we owned ourselves, and it was the machine that made me get serious and develop some actual video gaming skills. Because although I was endlessly fascinated by video games already, at the time I lacked the proper hand-eye coordination to be any good at them. And games like Super Mario Bros., Castlevania, the shoddily ported Ghosts and Goblins, Gradius, Gunsmoke, Metroid and The Legend of Zelda were my harsh teachers. The last two games on the list were initially the ones that eluded me the most. Not only was the action tough, it was also very tough for me to get anywhere in them. Until a school friend picked up the US Nintendo Power catalogue we got the, with the whole lot. It contained full maps for these games, pointing out where all the secret passages and entrances were, and he helped guide me through the games, pointing me where I needed to go, for at least 25% of those games anyway. That's how Metroid and The Legend of Zelda clicked for me, and once I found my footing, I consulted maps less and less and played them to completion. Isolating The Legend of Zelda, the time I spent with it is as unforgettable as the time I spent with just about any of the games I previously mentioned. It possessed a unique atmosphere, and the ability to traverse large parts of the map right from the start was awe-inspiring. I imagine it would have instilled a real sense of adventure in many players that sank their teeth in it without a map, way back when, but I had ruined that feeling for myself. Before long, the continuously repeating overworld theme got on my nerves, thanks to spending long periods roaming about in 8-bit Hyrule, and this is also why I was never too thrilled when it would make a return in future Zelda titles, though there is something majestic about its rendition in A Link to the Past, I must admit. Somehow the spooky dungeon theme never got old to me, however. I still associate it with tension, the beeping sound of one final remaining heart and facing the toughest regular enemies in the game. If you look at The Legend of Zelda now, through the lens of modern game design, its reliance on finding secret entrances by bombing or burning areas on the screen without any visual hints, and how are you supposed to find the route through the Lost Woods by yourself? Seems baffling, 
but it might just have been Miyamoto and Co.'s intention and desire for the game to lead a life outside of the borders of the TV screen via whispers and rumours on schoolyards everywhere, or via a school friend reading the game's map for you. Excellent post, Mikhail. Uh, yeah, we didn't really talk about bosses there. Um, weirdly, they tended to, by and large, for me, be a lot easier than the getting to them. <laughs> yeah, they weren't bad. Yeah, I think they were more impressive, like I said earlier, just because they were featured in later games. So, you know, going back and seeing mm. Goma and Dodongo, like, I kind of knew how they worked because I'd played them mm, in, yeah. in 3D versions. And I was really, like, kind of pleased and happy to see them back. But they kind of just sort of scuttled around a bit and fired... A thing at you <laughs> and they didn't sometimes really... they didn't move at all yeah, yeah. yeah a few yeah. multi-headed dragons um, they just didn't yeah. seem like the events that they've now become you know and no. again that's hardware limitations and that but like no cutscenes. you just walk in and there walk they in. yeah it just sort of like just loads in after you've entered the room and it's just they there. do roar nicely yeah. if you're in the in the screen next to them though which mm-hmm. is quite cool even ganon isn't all that difficult really no not too bad if you've got enough hearts and yeah. and and some shielding um, but still, again, a bit of a, I think the, the way that he's invisible and you have to hit him while he's invisible. I mean, it gives you a clue. Yeah. But again, that feels like a, a, a 30 year old bit of sort of gaming to me, like trying to hit an invisible foe, not knowing exactly where he is. There was no kind of clue. Obviously, they couldn't do a translucent effect or anything like that. Um, although some enemies do shimmer in and out of, of being so like the whiz robes. So. Maybe they could have done a bit more on that. But yeah, it, he doesn't take too many hits, thankfully. Um, but you do need to have found the silver arrow to uh, to finish him off. That's mandatory. Now back to our correspondence. And this is a new correspondent known by the moniker of Random Dent. The first Zelda game I experienced was Ocarina of Time, and it has a profound impact on me as a child. 90s kid here. From there, I've only gone back as far as Link to the Past, and even that I didn't play too much of. So, without ever playing it before and knowing relatively nothing about it, I bought The Legend of Zelda via the Virtual Arcade for my 3DS and booted it up. I was first impressed to hear the iconic Zelda theme playing. I wasn't so sure I'd hear much of any music at all, but to see that the adventure-defining theme song was playing right out of the gate with the first game was neat and impressive. In fact, all of the music in the game is pretty good. I find myself frequently humming the dungeon theme. Graphically, again, I was impressed. I never owned an NES, so I wasn't exactly sure how it would look, but it was more than playable. Different colours, sprites, architecture, all good stuff. I enjoyed seeing the varied environments and enemies. I suppose the big question is, does the game hold up? I'd say so. I quite enjoyed it after the first bumpy hour or so. I don't mind being tossed in, not knowing what to do. I actually found that quite refreshing. It was when I accidentally bombed a random wall and it opened up. I was struck not with wonder or amazement, which I think I should have been, but a sort of nagging, well, how would I have known to do that? So, of course, my next thought is, so I have to bomb every wall in this game to make sure I get everything? It's this aspect of this and many other older games I find interesting. You hear a lot of back in my day, we didn't have the internet. I would wander around for weeks not knowing what to do. I'm not sure how to take that. Games were different then and made to last a long time and not in the this one part is hard, it'll be a while before I master it way, but moreover, I literally have to bomb every wall because I've nowhere else to go. That's not necessarily true with this specific game, but the sentiment does exist and I think many who were around at the time hold it as a sort of badge of honour. We had no help then, but we figured it out. Now, I love older games. Games I think would distinguish as pretty difficult, but they're hard because they are intended to be, not just because they're using now archaic mechanics or that developers just didn't know any better. 
Are Zelda's more esoteric aspects products of intended difficulty? You couldn't put a little crack in the wall to tell me, really? Or is this as a result of it being, frankly, an old game? I'm not sure. I know that right now I've no interest in such tedious tasks. I'm an adventurer, not a sort of world contractor tasked with checking the integrity of every in-game wall. It's also easier to forgive or overlook this stuff as a kid. It's much harder as a child to distinguish if a game is fantastic or garbage. I didn't care, I was just having fun. I have a buddy who knows The Legend of Zelda very well, so he was able to help prod me along at certain points, particularly with finding a couple of early helpful heart pieces. I didn't feel bad about him helping me because I felt like I was emulating that schoolyard gossip you would have gotten at the time. Looking to the internet was not something I wanted to do, but in-person help was acceptable. Again, not sure how I would have figured out a lot of the hidden stuff without it. Overall, I enjoyed it probably a bit more than I thought I would. With a few extra hearts under your belt, a better sword and boomerang, it's really a lot of fun wandering about trying to find the next dungeon. It does get pretty punishingly difficult later with those damned warping wizards, but it's a good, if not frustrating, sort of challenge. Thank you, Random Dent. Next up we have a regular play-along-with-the-show man, bless him, Alex79UK, who went into this thinking this. I've never liked the Zelda series. Unfairly, I might add, but it's always been a series that I was sure I didn't like. The first Zelda game I played was Ocarina of Time and I hated it. I'd just finished Final Fantasy VII and was desperate for another big RPG to sink my teeth into. Someone suggested I try Zelda and I sat playing it thinking, hang on, this is nothing like Final Fantasy. I gave up after about half an hour and never went back. I've always known I should have played them, but barring a brief dalliance with Minish Cap, the series has remained completely alien to me. Until now. Upon learning that Kane and Rince would be covering the series, I thought it was about time I really got stuck in and discover what I'd been missing. So there I was, like Link, about to embark on a huge journey. I started Legend of Zelda and died almost instantly. This wasn't going to be easy. Retrying and taking a more methodical approach, I started to make progress. I downloaded a map of the overworld and eventually found my way to the first dungeon. It was cleared relatively easily, as was the next. And the next? It was at this point I found myself completely stuck. Unsure of how to progress, I started to explore the dungeon more and discovered some sort of whistle, which, as it turns out, was essential to beating the boss. I felt pretty good about not using save states. I was playing via emulation and started to think the game wouldn't be that difficult after all. One thing I noticed whilst playing was just how much Binding of Isaac had pinched from the game. The hearts, the dungeons, blowing up the walls to find secrets, some enemy designs, even the areas where you climbed down a ladder and flipped view to side on. To say Ed and Co. borrowed from Zelda is the understatement of the century. Around the seventh dungeon, I found the game difficulty spiked to make things incredibly difficult, and it was at this point I decided I just wanted to finish the game and started really abusing the save state system. By the time I finished the game, I was relieved it was over. The game teased almost every emotion imaginable out of me over its course, but when it was done, I had no desire to go back and do it all again. Highlights of the game for me were the exploration of the overworld, which would have been more... Even more interesting if I'd not been checking a map every few minutes. The music was great too. I really enjoyed these tunes and despite the repetition, it never got annoying. The boss fights were a lot of fun too. Overall, I think it's a pretty solid start to the series and still playable now, if a little difficult by today's standards. I'm really pleased I played it though and I'm looking forward to playing as many of the others as I can. Cool. That's quite a surprising, I would say, response to somebody who didn't like Zelda and hadn't played the game before now that he you know he had problems towards the the latter end but yeah interesting last one 
for my poor reading voice, uh, but this is another uh, excellent new poster, Andrew Brown. With the first game in the series coinciding with the year of my birth, I've always felt that The Legend of Zelda and I have been connected on a spiritual level. It's the game I give credit to getting me into video games. I was aware of them as I grew older and I played them a bit, but the first Zelda is the first game that I was positively ravenous to break into and spend a parent-worrying amount of time with. Whereas most of the games I had seen before seemed like extended challenge modes to me, a game where you see how far you can get, where there was no fixed destination, where you could just explore and see what you could find was revelatory. Before I got old enough to understand that the Zelda games actually did have goals and weren't just a world to be wandered around in, it seemed to me that the point was to see how much you can find and how long you can last as opposed to how far you can get. It's a subtle difference, but one which has affected me ideologically. To this day, I like games best that allow me to explore, even if only a little bit, and more broadly, I become frustrated by tasks in which I have my hand held through the whole thing. Go here, do this, do that. You can't go that way. You have to go this way. This is what Zelda taught me. Let me be. Let me do my thing. Make my own discoveries, my own mistakes. Let me see what's out there. Don't tell me. To this day, this is probably what the original The Legend of Zelda does better than any other game in a series, which, for good or ill, have shifted into a more structured design ethos. It allows you to explore. It allows you to get lost. It allows you to make mistakes. There are no outlined paths for each dungeon, which you are required to follow. It's easiest to find the dungeon first, yes, and the game's designers should be given kudos for that, but there's nothing stopping the player from ignoring it, from heading out into other areas or other dungeons to see what they can find, to see how far they can get, to see what they can get away with. Exploring a Zelda game, and the first game in particular, is about the growth of the character. The more you explore, the stronger you get, and the more you are able to explore. It's a recursive model which works wonderfully to create a sense of continued discovery and conquering the countryside. The first screen, having a cave you can enter where Impa gives you your first sword, sets the stage for everything that follows. Find caves, enter them, see what's inside, use what's inside to beat the next cave. Can't beat what's in that cave? Come back later with stuff from other caves. Even beating Ganon doesn't necessarily mean you've done everything there is to do in the game, that you found everything in every last cave, which in a time when beating Bowser and rescuing the princess meant you had seen all the game had to offer, at least in theory, was amazing. As I've grown older, I've learned that Zelda was hardly the first video game, let alone game to do this, hello, adventure. But to me, The Legend of Zelda is the one of the first games that did it well, and it's still a satisfying experience to this day. Terrific. Thank you one and all for your Zelda experiences. I mm. thought it might be one of those games that we wouldn't get so much correspondence regarding, but I was wrong. Any of you have played it? Some three-word reviewers from Twitter follow us at Kane and Rince. We have... Alex Dola says, it started here. Legendary Whizball says, something special begins. Jimmy Robinson, too bloody hard. David Stretch, dangerous, take this. Zach Singer, where to next? Matt Lucas, groundbreaking, walkthrough mandatory. Anthony Asaf says, charming but rudimentary. Neil Piper, clever classic adventure. Matthew Woolley. My first game. Craig D. Craig says, where am I? Gallo Pinto says, like, like, suck. I agree with that. Literally and metaphorically. <laughs> Andrew Brown, linearity, grumble, grumble. Brad Galloway says, a second quest. So let us conclude the first of our goodness knows how many Zelda podcasts with a little summary and uh, 
would you recommend that people take this adventure for themselves? Darren? Oh, The Legend of Zelda. Uh, it kind of... It's the epitome of a Kane and Rince podcast, in my opinion. Like, you know, I love Nintendo and I've, I've loved the Zelda series, but never gone back to the original until this podcast was to be recorded. Like, I kind of knew that we were doing this. So that's why I played it back in the summertime. And, you know, I've learned a lot about the, um, the game since, uh, you know, the, the BS in BS Zelda standing for broadcast, uh, Teleview. So the BS oh. does stand for something. And that version of the game had a female, a playable mascot, not known as that's Link, right. but just known as mascot. So, you know, the reasons for playing Zelda in 2015, uh, it, you know, it is because of this podcast, but also, you know, uh, I also really liked playing it just because I liked learning about where it all came from. Uh, so, yeah, it's hard to recommend as an actual game, but if you like the series, then you could do yourself a favour and like research it or just see someone else play it on YouTube maybe or just play it yourself and see how well you get on with it. There's a lot to, there's a lot to learn from the original Zelda and you know how, how old it is and take that all into account. But does it make for a fun experience? <laughs> no, not really in, in my... In my uh, my opinion fair enough thanks darren how about you josh um i i think my opinions are, are pretty similar to darren's in that i i did enjoy going back and playing this game but not really as a play experience just more of a a history lesson on games that i love that i've already played um you can see so much of the games um, I love uh, starting here. Um, everything from, you know, Dark Souls to, you know, future Zelda games to Castlevania to all of that stuff. All of those ideas really kind of grew and, and, and flourished and flowered from this game. And um, from that perspective, I, I really did find playing through this game really engaging. But some of the combination of uh, of enemies and some of the decisions behind how those attacks would work and and just why are there bullets coming towards me in a in a Zelda game? I don't. I just uh, all of that stuff really was frustrating, and I can't imagine playing this you know naturally just. Without the save state stuff, without a walkthrough, there was no way I was ever going to complete this game. So I recommend this game as a history lesson, but not as a a fun game to play. Thank you. Uh, yes, broadly similar from me. Uh, so pleased that I've finally seen the end. Uh, I don't feel like I've done it properly in a lot of ways uh, with the, the walkthrough help and the saves coming and all that sort of thing. But I did play it. I basically played it in a way that is available and and you know perfectly legitimate to do now. In that that's you know if you buy it on 3ds or Wii U, it gives you the option to to use the save states. Um, and I'd rather have done that than not completed it in an alternate reality of where I have infinite time and patience. Uh, I would have been happy to attempt this, um, but you know life is too short and that sort of thing. To be honest, you know, I was playing games in the mid 80s. I was playing arcade adventures, a lot of games that were really, really hard um, and confusing and, and oblique and obscure. And I didn't finish many of them. Um, you know, I, I, there, there are any number of classic, classic 8-bit games. And that's partly why they don't often come up on the Kane and Rince podcast is, is there are some games I'd love to cover, but 
I'd want to, you know, we, we like to finish things. We, we pledge to finish things before we talk about them, but some of those games are so darn hard to finish. Um, and this definitely, definitely goes alongside those, but, um, but I wasn't, I certainly wasn't hating playing it. Maybe there were a few moments I was hating playing it. Some of those rooms we mentioned with too many enemy sprites, too much going on, too much unfairness and nastiness, but the overall experience was pleasant enough, but mainly for me, it was about closure and the history lesson, as we've said, and the excitement of moving on, not to the next one, but the one after that and all the <laughs> ones after that. But yeah, now, now Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link, which I've never got anywhere with before. So you can find out how we all get on in a month's time. Darren's already played it. But I go in with an open mind. Mm-hmm. Ryan. Yeah, so um, with this new podcast volume, I, I'm signed on to all of the Zelda series, at least within the next year. And so I was really looking forward to going back and finishing up the ones that I hadn't played yet, you know, for the podcast. Uh, but I kind of viewed, you know, I viewed like a Minish Cap and, and uh, Spirit Tracks as like, oh, you know, I'm quite curious about these. I'd love to see how they hold up these days. But I viewed, you know, these first two NES games as like, paying my taxes like all right (laughs) let's let's just muscle through these and you know put these experiences behind me just to say that i've done it and i have this experience now and uh zelda 2 turns out i was right on the money but actually zelda 1 i i enjoyed a lot more than i thought i was going to and um this is probably almost entirely because i was you know cheating my entire way through like i had um save states i had walkthroughs which i i didn't use the walkthroughs for probably like the first half of the game just maybe to check like a thing here or there but i was pretty much you know following step by step in the last dungeon so just kind of putting myself back in that headspace of what it would have been like to play this game back when it was new and to think through if this was the only game that i owned and i had the time to play it through properly I feel like I could have done it and I feel like I would have really enjoyed it and gotten a lot out of it. And, mm. you know, I'm coming to this game after, uh, you know, pretty thoroughly caning and rinsing uh, Hyrule Warriors, which has an adventure mode that's built around this game's map, which is a really cool little oh, Easter okay. egg. But mm. uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And all of the, uh, um, it's kind of like a level select screen, uh, but it has all the old NES graphics and stuff. And, you have uh, items that you can use on this map and they unlock secrets that are in the same place as the actual secrets from this game. And so I had that little bit of like idea in the back of my head. Like I kind of knew where a few of the caves were and I kind of knew what items to use where and just having that little bit of knowledge to at least kind of put me in the right direction, put me in the right mindset, gave me enough um, agency and self-efficacy to handle this, this Zelda world. But it really felt like an adventure in a way that I don't really get from a lot of games. And I realize a lot of that is, it's like, um, I'm also kind of replaying Nino Kuni for the podcast. And that is a big, grand adventure game. And it's very kind of similar to this in a lot of ways. Like you play as this young boy who's traveling across the world and encountering strange monsters. and um, But that one is very much telling a directed story there's voice acting there's cutscenes. there's a very clear linearity of experience whereas this game 
kind of felt like I was just going out into the world and the world didn't necessarily have a story that it was trying to get me to understand step by step along the way. Like I was building my own story and I was, um, you know, even though there were, there's not a lot that you can do to interact with the world in these games, I felt that everything I was doing was because I wanted to do it, not because the game was forcing me into a certain direction. Um, so that uh, it might just be a fancy way to say that nonlinearity is cool, but it's mm. there's something about this game that you know all the all the secrets are just so stubbornly hidden, you know, by today's standards. Of course, everything is so just invisible to the player. All the systems are just so almost aggressively hidden from the player's view. It it felt like the real world in a way. Um, it felt like when, you know, my, my friends and I would, you know, uh, in college, we'd go out and just explore abandoned buildings like like Miyamoto was uh, was trying to evoke back in his uh, back when he created the game. So I feel like, mm. at least for me, that original vision that Miyamoto had definitely came through. Uh, whether or not I'd recommend people to go back to it now, I'd say I, I think that people could get a lot out of running through the first like three dungeons maybe uh I, I think that there's not a lot that this game does that the later ones don't do better and so as far as a gameplay experience goes you're probably not going to uh, have your mind blown in any, any significant way but uh I, I think that there is enough to glean out of the experience of this first zelda game that i'd say you know give uh give the first few levels a run and just see if anything surprises you and kind of take note of that. Uh, think about it, you know, the next day when you're falling asleep or taking a shower or something, just like let those memories sit with you and, um, and just see if it is something that feels personally resonant. And if so, then you have a, a long and difficult journey ahead of you, but I, I found it rewarding in the end. Interesting. I'm glad I, by chance, how did you go? last that was probably the most <laughs> interesting uh summary right so off we go again that was uh, issue 201 of the cane rinse podcast the first of volume five uh, so it just remains for me leon to thank darren josh and ryan and to tell you that next time in volume five issue 202 we belatedly choose one of three possible endings for that which we started in volume one issue 22 Mass Effect 3.